This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This is the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Labor Day isn't all work. In fact, one of the ironies of the day is that as we celebrate labor, many people get the day off. But it is also a day to play, and for many, the last big cookouts of the season. And, of course, the last weekend of food debates, one of which is, as proud as all of you are of your marinades, is it even worth the trouble? Senior Culinary Director Daniel Gritzer is here from Serious Eats. Daniel, good to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So marinades, I, there's the rub, because <laughs> I get rubs. You know, they're on the meat. And, and sometimes, I was watching Chopped a couple of weeks ago, and of course, they always put weird things together, but somebody did a marinade of a steak in Green Goddess dressing. And I was watching that thinking, really? Is that even going to get into the steak? Is that a great idea? Yeah, good question. So is it going to get into the steak? There, there are so many layers to peel back here. The Let's see, in the broadest strokes, um, and this is... This is something we have talked about on Serious Seats a lot. We are a very nerdy, science-driven publication. Um, but only recently did uh, did I decide that we really needed to do a proper deep dive on it with, with more extensive testing. But there's always also more to test. Um, and so after – and I, I worked with this great contributor. I have to – I have to um, – Shout out his name, Tim Chin. He's a brilliant cook, writer, and uh, and has a great science brain as well. Um, he did a lot of this testing. Um, and a marinade does many things, but it also doesn't do some of the things we think it does. So there, probably the biggest takeaway, if I just start from, from, from the, the main point, it would be a marinade, more than anything else, acts as a brine, uh, meaning the salt penetrates the meat. It does season into the interior of the meat. And it also can change how meat retains its water and therefore juiciness. But very little else of a marinade in terms of flavor is getting in there almost at all. Let me just ask one broad general question before we get deeper into this, though. One of the reasons a lot of people say that they like to marinate 
is uh, that it improves the tenderness as well as the flavor. Right. And I think that this is really one of the things that we can say a marinade is successful at. So as a brine, um, so really just speaking of the salt in particular, uh, we know that salt uh, penetrates into the meat. Uh, And this, it's not, this isn't, this doesn't always cut perfectly as an explanation, but in general terms, uh, the smaller a molecule is, the easier of a time it has getting inside the meat because the meat itself is if you th- if you think of it there, it's there's like a there there are barriers there it's 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 not like walking into an empty room this is a fairly dense uh material and so something like salt which is just sodium chloride when it dissolves into water it breaks into these I mean, I don't, I can't even put into words how, how, how infinitesimally small these, these ions are. They don't have much trouble sneaking inside the meat. And beyond that, not only just in terms of their physical size, being able to enter the meat, uh, they're charged because they're ions. So they have a, you know, either a positive or a negative charge because of the, the fact that the molecule has split and that charge also, it's like a, like a magnet. It's like an attractive force. It helps the salt get pulled into the meat. So this, the salt is definitely getting in there. Um, and once it gets in there, it's improving the seasoning of the meat throughout. It is also, the salt is able to dissolve some proteins that are in muscle tissue. And those proteins, when the meat is finally cooked, they they tighten and squeeze, almost like a sponge squeezing itself. And so the tighter they squeeze, the more liquid gets pushed out, just like wringing out a sponge, just from the heat alone. And so if the salt's in there and it is dissolving some of these proteins, they actually don't uh, squeeze together as tightly. And so that's where you get that moisture retention benefit from salt, uh, which is a, a really uh, you know, kind of wonderful thing to take advantage of and why your turkey, uh, when you brine it, comes out uh, juicier than if you didn't. One of the big issues here, and I guess it depends on the marinade, is how long, because some people will leave it overnight. Some people do it like maybe an hour before they throw something on the grill. So how long, and since that's probably different for different cuts and different marinades, how do we know how long? Precisely. This it, this is where it gets a little hard to give very specific guidance because to your point, different cuts of meat, different types of meat have different properties. Uh, chicken is not the same as pork. It's not the same as beef. It's definitely not the same as fish. And in, in our testing, we didn't even include fish. Um, I'd love to do that down the road. Um, but uh, in terms of the uh, the brining benefit of a marinade, um, and the other thing that we can talk about is that the acid or the alkaline or the enzyme effect of marinades, because that is another sort of dimension that where time becomes very important. Generally speaking, somewhere in the one to eight hour range for the brining effect is good. And four hours is seems in our tests was kind of the tended to be the sweet spot across proteins. Certainly for chicken, uh, pork and steak, they they held up a bit better even with like longer times up to eight hours, uh, but not much more than that. You really don't need. By the way, if you go in Serious Eats and see Daniel's article on all this and the science and all this, it's absolutely fascinating. They made all these different cuts of meat and tried different marinades, different number of hours. And you point out that in one of the things, you marinated something for 24 hours. And even though visually it wasn't different, and I'm, I'm going to quote this from, from the article, that the sample felt noticeably firmer than the other samples, almost like a gummy bear which I would take it is not exactly what you were hoping for. Chicken with the texture of a gummy bear was 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 definitely not a good thing. And 
Pork held up a bit better in these tests and uh, steak as well. But one of the things that salt also does, in addition to the things I described before, the seasoning, the moisture retention, is it also can begin to cure the meat if you think of a ham or something like that. And so as, as the meat sort of drifts into that cured territory and chicken did it sooner than the pork and the steak did in our tests, it starts to become less and less desirable. Salt makes a difference in flavor. It makes a difference in uh, tenderness and and all of that. So now all the other goop that, that we put <laughs> right. in our marinades, do they make much of a difference in actual flavor? Let's shift over to the the acid or its its op, its counterpart base, uh, and also the enzyme question. And those are that's another element that's common in in a lot of marinade recipes. Is there's something that either makes it acidic, or if there's baking soda or something added that makes it alkaline, so opposite of acid. And then there are also marinades where you have, I mean, something like fresh pineapple juice, which is both acidic, but it also has enzymes in it, natural enzymes in the pineapple juice and also papaya. There's different ones and the enzymes have their own effects. So all of these together, uh, acid-based enzyme have really significant effects on the meat that you are marinating over time. Oftentimes, if you're not careful, makes a kind of big, bad difference. Let's go back to fat for a second. Does fat improve the flavor inside the meat? Something you hear often in the kitchen, and it's true, is fat adds flavor. Uh, you know, there's there's some molecules that dissolve in water, and there's some molecules that dissolve in fat. And a lot of flavor molecules actually dissolve in fat better than water. And so fat becomes a very powerful conduit of flavor. It's not the only role it plays in cooking, but it's that's an important one. Uh, and so it's easy then to take that idea and sort of extrapolate from it and say, well, therefore, fat, if I put oil in my marinade, that adds flavor. But as it turns out, uh, it doesn't, certainly not in the sense of flavor penetrating the meat in any detectable way. Fat is a, is a big molecule. It's just not getting into the meat. I mean, the meat will have its own fat, you know, dispersed in the in the tissue. The fat that you add to a marinade, it's just not going to get in there. And so even if that fat is carrying flavor from whatever aromatics it's been mixed with or its own flavor, if it's olive oil or something like that, it's just not going to get into the meat. It, it doesn't matter if you leave it for, you know, a, a, an hour, two hours, two days in the, inside the meat beyond just the very, very surface, you're not going to taste it. But that doesn't mean fats doesn't have a place in a marinade because fat does do important things. It, fat is also a great uh, conductor of heat. And so if you think you have a piece of meat and it's marinated and because there was fat in the marinated, it's kind of coated in this gloss of oil when it comes out of the marinade, that can enhance browning once you put that meat, say, on a grill. You know, another interesting thing is just the, the whole food science thing. I think it goes farther back in time on the food industry side. Food scientists working for potato chip companies trying to figure out like formulating like the, the, the flavor of Doritos or, you know, that kind of thing. And chefs kind of picked up on that, you know, now probably 20 plus years ago in really high-end restaurants. And a lot of what they learned and applied, they actually got from patent applications in a lot of cases from the food industry. Uh, there's the, the history of that's fascinating. It's, it is absolutely fascinating. Again, you can go to SeriousEats.com, see the article about marinades and much, much more. Daniel Gritzer is Senior Culinary Editor for Serious Eats. Thank you so much for having me. Stay with us for more of the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. This is the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. On this Labor Day special each year, we've tried to look ahead at the future of work. 
as the constantly changing world of technology and economics turns the labor market upside down. This year, the new thing, of course, is AI. It's actually not a new thing. It's been around for some time. But our little baby artificial intelligence is growing up quickly now and is more available and ready to take on more things than ever. Dan Tynan recently launched a newsletter on AI. He has been editor-in-chief of Yahoo Tech and executive editor of PC World. And I said you just launched a newsletter on AI. So are you writing it or is AI writing that, Dan? I'm sorry. I'm not allowed to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of answer artificial intelligence would give. But let's go on. Go on with this anyway. It made me sign an NDA. What can I say? (laughs) Okay. Uh, The World Economic Forum's Future of Jobs says America's workforce is in for something of a shock. Of course, it's been shocked by automation. It's been shocked by other kinds of technology. Usually goes over time. This seems to be happening quickly all of a sudden. How much of a shock are we talking about? Well, I mean, uh, according to the the World Economic Forum, about four out of 10 jobs will be disrupted. Uh, You know, they'll be changed in one way or another uh, and largely by technology. Uh, a lot of it has to do with tools like generative AI, tools like ChatGPT, uh, but it's also, you know, just a, a reemphasis on um, away from experience and more towards skills. So we're talking about skills, and people might be listening and saying, "Well, skills are always needed." So what are we really talking about when we say something like that? Well, what you know, in that case, what we're really talking about is. Um, kind of familiarity with technology, uh, analytical skills, uh, creative thinking. Uh, One of the ideas is that, you know, we have machines, you know, to do the grunt work, right? We've always done that since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, And now we have machines that can do some of the thinking work and some of the digital work. uh, And that's new. And so what organizations are looking for are people who can kind of uh, adapt to change more quickly, uh, can learn new skills quickly, uh, and and can be more creative, can do some of the things that machines can't do yet. All right. Now, the person who does the hiring, formerly known as the person who does the hiring and now known as Chief Human Resources Officer, will be looking for what? What skills are we talking about that are going to be especially valuable here? Well, I mean, uh, analytical skills, right? The ability to really to understand data, to work with data uh, and, and to apply it in practical ways for sure. Um, creative problem solving is another one. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of what we're going to see in the workforce is people's jobs being a lot more fluid than they used to be. Uh, used to be you were hired to do a particular task and you did that task. And if you did it well, you were hired to do the next task. And in this case, uh, what we'll see is more organizations that have just like a pool of talent. And, you know, they may, they might pick, you know, different people, for different projects based on the skills they bring. <clears throat> so it requires a lot more flexibility in terms of both workers uh, and the ability to manage those workers. So I'm taking a look at, at you know, people listening to this, leaning into the radio, going, which is a bad driving position if you're in the car, but still, people trying to figure out well, how this is going to affect them. And I've noticed something in my own industry where we've gone through a ton of technology over the last several decades. Yes. There's almost been more job losses due to CEOs paying far too much for companies they buy. (laughs) Tech has cost some people their jobs, but it's also created a lot of jobs that never existed before for people who are willing to learn the new technology. So is that going to be true for AI? Are we talking about jobs wiped out, jobs created? What? Well, absolutely, it will be true. Uh, The analogy I like to use is automobiles. Uh, you know, back in, I don't know, 1910, 1915, um, you know, automobiles were pretty new. 
Uh, and uh, they started to displace jobs for people, you know, like, you know, blacksmiths. Suddenly you didn't need as many horseshoes, right? Um, sweet sweet street sweepers, right? Uh, you know, there's not as much manure on the streets to sweep, right? And, you know, buggy whip manufacturers, you know, they all went out of business and it took a while. Um, but what happened as a result was then we suddenly we have an entirely new generation of, of jobs in terms of like auto mechanics, and gas stations and, you know, car builders and designers. And so we have this whole industry that emerges and then ends up employing more people over time than the one it replaced. Um, I'm not sure AI will do that, but it will definitely create new jobs that we don't even know about yet. Uh, and it's already started to do this. I mean, uh, there's been a number of uh, advertisements for what's called a prompt engineer, and it's not someone who shows up on time. It's actually someone who can prompt the AI engines to come up with uh, creative solutions. So that is a job. Feeding uh, the right questions to the right tools is going to be one of the big jobs over the next five years. Yeah, but even with automation and, and uh, a lot of software things, it still needed somebody to guide it. And I think one of the fears that people are looking at here is that the AI is perfectly able to guide itself and use itself to do things. And after an initial human puts some some programming into it, or or maybe not that much if it can just scrape stuff off the internet, um, it won't really need us anymore. <laughs> we really hope the, you know the robots will continue to need us. Um, one of the classic lines is uh, Marvin Minsky, who is considered one of the fathers of AI in the in the 1950s, uh, used to joke about. He says, you know, when machines become smart enough, maybe they'll decide to keep humans as pets. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he was kidding. I hope he was kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, so we are in a really interesting age. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, AI has been, AI has been with us a long time uh, and it's it's grown up pretty quickly. Uh, and so, you know, we don't actually know what the limits are. But, you know, it's one of the reasons why there's a Hollywood strike right now is because uh, studios are looking at AI saying, oh, we can, you know, we can use a machine to do this and save a ton of money. Um, and, you know, they want to put restrictions in place that say, no, you can't. But because it is possible to generate a screenplay uh, using ChatGPT, it won't be very good <laughs> yet, but someday it might be. And, you know, that's a worry. Well, and I talked to a lot of the writers who are striking and, you know, when, when you get people off mic, they say, yeah, you know, right now, AI is not going to be able to write something very, very creative, like, say, the Christopher Nolan film on Oppenheimer. But they said, but could AI write one of the 18,000 sequels to a superhero movie that all seem to be cut out of the same plot? They say, yeah. And, you know, some guys have run some programs to see if it could do that. And I got to tell you, again, not on really creative stuff, still not that good at humor, but on things like sequels to, to superhero movies, the scripts were pretty hard to tell from what's out there. I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because I, I did that as an experiment. I, I asked uh, all three of the major um, large language models like ChatGPT and BARD and, and Bing Chat uh, to write a, what's called a log line, right? Basically a one sentence description of a, of a superhero movie. And you're right. They are indistinguishable from some of the scripts coming out of Hollywood. So, yeah, there's that. <laughs> um, you know, and I think what's going to happen, uh, at least with the current generation of tools, is that you know, people will go, oh, wow, this is great. This can do this for me. And then after a while, they're going to look at it and say, well, what it just did looks like what everyone else just did. And, you know, maybe we need to bring a human back into the loop to make this more unique. Yeah, I've said no Hollywood CEO ever. No. <laughs> Listen, you think, talking about 
you know, young people, a lot of people are thinking, well, it's the young people that are going to, you know, be harnessing this and doing great with it. But you think employee expectations are going to change the most for Gen Z, which people who can't keep up with these various initials are people born between 1997 and 2012. So we're talking about, you know, the youngest part of the workforce. And why do you think that their expectations are going to change the most? Well, I mean, Gen Z, I mean, a lot of these people came into the workforce during the pandemic, right? And so, you know, they don't have, they haven't had a very, what's considered a normal working experience yet, right? And they're also, you know, for for whatever reasons, and I think they're good reasons, is they're, they're much more focused on, you know, corporate values and, you know, social responsibility. Uh, they want to work for companies that align with their beliefs, and they want to work for companies that are kind of on the cutting edge or kind of changing things. Um, and I, th- I say more power to them. Um, but so as a result, if you're trying to hire these people and you need to, because there's going to be a huge job shortage, um, you need to think about, okay, what are we really offering these people? I mean, sure, they want a salary and they want the chance to advance and, you know, career mobility and all that. But they also want to do something that matters. And so uh, it's going to make it a lot harder for organizations that are used to just, you know, hiring people and say, well, we pay a good wage and we offer good benefits and that should be enough. Thinking about young people and and older people and again, some of the stereotypes, I've noticed an odd thing in my workplaces over the years as new tech arrived. And maybe this is restricted to broadcast journalism, but maybe not. People in their 20s and 30s were eager to learn the new tech. They're comfortable with tech. They, they like learning new things. They know they need the skills in order to do things. Uh, so strangely were people in their 60s who knew they had to learn it in order to keep their careers going. If they didn't, their careers might be over. And they dove into it. The most recalcitrant and stubborn people were in between, people in their 40s who just kind of went, I've done you know, 20 years of doing it this way, and there's no need to learn a new way. And it, it always kind of fascinated me. I see the guy that some would consider a codger, you know, over there in the corner, just banging <laughs> things out. The young people were banging things out. And the people in the middle were sitting there just as if they had just seen a ghost. So one of the things I have to remember is, you know, is, you know, our technology revolution, the internet in particular and computers was built by the boomers. The boomer generation developed everything we're using now. Right. And so, you know, in some ways you might expect folks of a certain age to be more uh, open to innovation and open to change because, you know, they created all these tools we're using right now. We'll have more with Dan Tynan about AI and the future of work after this break here on the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking with Dan Tynan about an article he wrote for Forbes about AI and the future of work. There was a time, which uh, was before the memory of many people working today, where companies would do this themselves. They would do training because they wanted people to learn it a certain way. Now it seems more and more companies just won't do that, don't want to spend the money on training. And it seems more and more people have to find some way to learn these skills or go away. So the question becomes, as AI becomes more predominant and people have to learn to work with it in order to keep their jobs, are companies going to help them with that? Or are they, again, going to be on their own? I think uh, well, it's always a combination, right? Uh, a, but I think companies are going to have to help uh, their employees or their potential employees gain new skills. Uh, 
you know, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense for a company to take an existing employee and teach them something new. It's way cheaper than trying to hire someone new. I mean, cost of recruiting and advertising, advertising and the sort of the downtime for people to do interviews, much easier to throw somebody into a class. Uh, and a lot of what's happening now, uh, organizations are doing what's called micro training, which is the, you might have an app on your phone and, you know, you might say, you know, bosses, oh, you need to do this new thing. Watch this video on your phone for five minutes and they'll tell you how to do it. There are more and more, and this has happened you know, steadily over the last 30, 40 years, companies that have, you know, just wanted to see a college degree, used it to sort out resumes and haven't really been interested in people's skills coming in. Now you're talking about a skill-based society because of AI. So are we going back to, hey, kid, can you do this? <laughs> or are we still going to require people to, you know, get in debt for hundreds of thousands of dollars for a degree that may or may not even be able to keep up with something like AI and could leave what they learned in school, not knocking college at all, but leave what they learned in school basically out of date and inadequate just a few years after they walk out of college. I think, you know, colleges are actually, uh, you know, realizing this and they're they're getting nervous about it because, yes, uh, a college degree means less than it used to. Uh, you know, although, you know, a lot of, you know, employers, you know, and I used to be one of them, right? When I'd hire people, I, you know, look and see, you know, what school they graduated from. Uh, and, you know, it's much less important now and much more important about, you know, actually their ability to learn. Right. Someone's ability to, to take on new things. So um, one of the folks I talked to for these stories, um, they talked about we have to stop screening out and start screening in. So we have to start stop saying, OK, well, you don't meet these 16 criteria, so I don't have to talk to you. And we have to look for more broadly at, oh, well, maybe this person would be a good fit. Right. It makes the job of hiring much harder. But it also opens up the field to a lot more diversity. And, you know, study after study shows you that the more diverse workforce you have, the better decisions you end up making. This is going to require a change in companies because to have a skill based workforce, some manager who's doing has the power to hire has to know what skills, interests and capabilities are needed for the job. And let's face it, a lot of managers who hiring has been put in the hands of the human resources or whatever, don't really have that depth of knowledge of individual jobs to know what's required in terms of skills. So this is going to mean a shakeup at companies if they are to be successful at hiring the right people to work with AI. Absolutely. It's going to be require rethinking organizations. It's going to require rethinking how do we manage our workforce, uh, you know, uh, Especially, you know, something, a term I ran across in my research was matrix management, which has been around a few years, but I was unfamiliar with, which is the idea that sort of you have a group of employees and you have a bunch of managers and you share responsibility for managing them because there's so much cross-functionality going on, right? People are building cross-functional teams, you know, they're pulling someone from marketing, someone from manufacturing, someone from legal, someone from IT, and they're putting them together in a team to build something. So all of these people work for different departments and have different bosses, right? So it requires a much more flexible approach to management. And I think we're really just in the early, early stages. So Dan, there's a lot more we could talk about with this, but the thing that's really hitting me as opposed to some technology changes, even automation, which took years and years and years because you had to create actual machines and everything to do jobs. It looks, the way this has gone in the last year, that this is going to happen pretty quickly. Whether you become Amazon or remain Sears Roebuck may happen to companies in the wink of an eye. Absolutely. This is a major disruption. 
you know, one of the reasons I started, decided to start a newsletter on AI is because it is such a huge disruption. I mean, it's on par with the, you know, the commercialization of the internet and the creation of the smartphone. I mean, that's the level of change AI will bring um, to how we do everything. And honestly, nobody knows what's going to happen over the next few years. Even the folks who build these things don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be really interesting. Does AI know? It's keeping those secrets to itself. And so once again, <laughs> if it even told you, you would have signed an NDA with AI and that, that would be it. Exactly. So this is where we end this part of the program. Dan Tynan recently launched a newsletter in AI, as he said. He's been editor-in-chief of Yahoo Tech and executive editor of PC World. Dan, pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Gil. Stay with us for more of the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. It's Labor Day. We are celebrating labor. We are celebrating work. And there are many perks at work, paid benefits, friendship, maybe a job that makes us feel purposeful to the community. But just like there are perks, there are jerks. People at work who seem to work at making your life miserable. Think Lewis Litt on Suits or Angela Martin on The Office. So what do you do about jerks at work? I mean, really, what? Dr. Tessa West is professor of psychology at NYU, leading expert on interpersonal interaction and communication. And in case you're still not clear on why she's here, she's also written the book, Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. Tessa, thank you for being here. Sure. I have been working for a long time and I've worked with some amazing people. I've also worked with people for whom jerk is too kind. Yeah, I think we can't really go through our lives in the workplace without encountering at least 50 jerks, <laughs> I'd say. It's it's incredibly common, and most of us probably have been the jerk at work um, on more than one occasion. So I think this is a topic that most people can relate to on the receiving end, on the giving end as well. And it's just something that doesn't seem to be going away these days. You know, on the giving end, let me tell you a brief story, and then we'll get into the seven types of jerks that you have in the book. But some people may have thought, I've never been a jerk at work. I started, and, and no names here because this person has become a great, great friend, but I started working with a person who for the first three months were awful, really awful. Everybody at work hated them. Uh, they were mean to people. They were dismissive of people. They were terrible. Went away for Christmas vacation, came back, and it was like there was a different soul in them as if their body had been taken over by someone else. Suddenly, they were the nicest person in the world. And I finally pulled them aside and said, what happened over vacation? And they said, why? And I said, because you're a completely different person. And they said, is it that obvious? I said, yeah, what happened? And they said, I got a divorce. And they were going through this terrible time in their life. They finally got this over with. Here's the thing. They had no idea they were being a jerk at work. So is it possible you could be a jerk at work and not know it? Oh, most of us don't know it. I mean, no one really tells us, first off. We don't really even get the feedback. And, you know, you're lucky that your your friend was a jerk just because of a of bad marriage, of a divorce. But probably most of us go through our lives being a jerk without ever getting that feedback. And if we're lucky enough that it's just due to some acute stressor like that, that's amazing. But 
you know, my work has shown that like, we just avoid this kind of feedback entirely. You can just go decades without knowing you're a jerk. And the only way you really can tell is that no one will give you a letter of recommendation or show up to your happy hour. It's really kind of this absence of positive feedback, not the presence of the negative stuff that is really the real warning sign that you're a jerk. I think it's no one answering your emails or requests for help, not anyone really telling you anything. So I think that's one of the reasons why most people have no clue that they're a jerk. Yeah, and in fact, as we get into some of the ways people are jerks at work, you think most jerks at work are accidentally jerks. Oh yeah, I think that most jerks, and and people are gonna disagree with this, but they're harming themselves just as much as other people often. You know, um, when you're rude and you lose employees or you micromanage or whatever, you're also harming yourself. And I think we don't often think about jerks as being costly to themselves. We think they're kind of out to get us. But in reality, it's often kind of that that self-cost. If they just knew how costly it was to behave this way, they would probably correct their behavior. But they're simply not thinking about it that way because they don't know they're a jerk. Okay. You mentioned one of your seven types of jerks at work right in there. So let's start with the micromanager. People who just drive us crazy, very often so intent on managing us, they waste a ton of time, tons of meetings where nothing gets done, small things that keep us from getting to the big thing. What makes people like that? Yeah, I I actually kind of feel bad for these people. No one feels bad for them when they're on the receiving end, but But the reason why a lot of people micromanage is because they were good at their old job, which is probably what your job is now. Um, They weren't trained on how to do their new job. We talk about promotions at work as a step up, but they're really a completely new job. Learning how to lead, learning how to manage is a whole different skill set. And so micromanagers are often very fearful that they're going to screw up at work. And so what they do is they oversee you with a level of detail that, that maybe they used to put into their job. A lot of this comes out of fear, um, fear that their manager will think they're not doing a good job. They don't know how to be hands-off and hands-on at the right times. And so you end up with someone who's actually working the hardest but getting the least done, and then kind of ironically also neglecting people at work at the same time because you can't simply micromanage all the time. You're micromanaging one person, that means you're ignoring somebody else or some other important thing. And so I think kind of the irony here is they're, they're working the hardest, they're getting the least done, but they're often neglecting really important projects at work or really important things that they should be working on instead. And again, kind of no one's really giving them that feedback that they're doing this. And sometimes they actually, as annoying as they are, they mean well. You know, they got to a certain place in life. Maybe they're the CEO now. Maybe they're just your manager. And they did things a certain way. But life has moved on. Back when your manager learned things, they had rotary phones. They had Rolodexes. They had floppy disks. And it's hard for them to see what they think is good advice is really outdated. Yeah, we see this a lot with new technology. And I think... People are really reluctant to let go of what got them to be successful. So the rotary thing, the 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 like the list of people you go to, you know, how you ought to use Microsoft Excel, even these little things like that, people get really stuck on. And I think trying to train them up or say we do things differently is super offensive to people. You know, they get very reactionary. What do you think I am? Old fashioned, don't know how to learn again. You know, so you get this kind of defensive response um, when you try to tell people you could really kind of modern it up a little bit. And, you know, people get very offended by that. And we see this huge tension among different generations in the workforce over that exact issue. Let's talk about another one of your seven groups, the kiss up, kick downer. And I bring them up because they're often the worst because they're often the most purposely jerks. Yeah, I love this type. It's so fun to talk about. (laughs) 
I worked a lot in retail and they, people in sales often become kiss up, take downers because it's kind of a zero sum world. You either get the sale or you don't. And if you don't, it goes to somebody else on your team or a colleague. These people are really good at reading a room. So they can walk into a room. They know who they need to impress. They know who the boss is. They know who they need to talk nice about behind those people's back to the boss and who they can kind of safely criticize and, and safely kind of torture behind the scenes. So these people are very good at knowing who has power work, who doesn't, whose impressions matter and whose don't. And they will do kind of anything to get ahead. And that often means you know, allocating work to someone who will never tell on them or disrespecting publicly people to get others to turn against them or getting them to question their own expertise. Anything it takes to get ahead, these people will do it. And yeah, I, I agree. It's very much an intentional thing. We often kind of think about these people for a long time. I think about my kiss up, kick downer in uh, shoe sales. I still think about this person 20 some odd years later because I never quite figured out how to outwit them at work. And it still bugs me to this day. Um, and I think a lot of people sort of walk away going, what just happened to me? <laughs> you know, you feel very kind of caught off guard by these people. So they're tricksy. They're super interesting for me to study. Um, but yeah, they, they are the most talented of all my jerks at work. Now, there's the credit stealer, another one of your types of jerks. And here it's sort of hard to tell. Some of them may have just forgotten that they heard the idea from somebody else. And some of them are basically, yeah, just trying to steal the credit. Yeah, these people are interesting because if you just think about the the idea of credit, most of us think that we actually deserve more credit than we're getting. Um, you know, if you add up how much contributions you did on a team of 10, it's going to add up to 500%. You know, everyone thinks they've contributed. Everyone thinks their ideas are the most important. So part of what's tricky with a credit stealer is actually knowing, are they in the right? Do they actually have a right to kind of take credit for things? And I think that's part of the process that's hard for people. The other thing I'd say is most credit stealers they're actually getting, they're able to do this not because they're really good at stealing, but they're really good at getting other people to allocate credit to them. Just ahead, we have more with Dr. Tessa West, professor of psychology at NYU, leading expert on interpersonal interaction and communication. We have more now on the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we continue our talk with Tessa West, professor of psychology at NYU. She's also written the book Jerks at Work. Let's start with HR, and then we'll deal with the one-on-one -on -one thing. If people have a complaint, somebody's just driving them nuts, seemingly for no reason, how do you deal with this in some documented way where you'll be taken seriously rather than just you know thrown out of the office and told, get a life? Yeah, I think... Um we often complain to HR instead of just learning how to have kind of daily small confrontations at work. I'm actually not a big fan of going to HR, at least as a first step. I think HR serves a purpose. It's often dealing with harassment, the kind of high level, real big stuff. But most of the stuff that actually contributes to our stress is small, it's daily, and it's low level, and it's not the stuff HR cares about. It's having a team member cut you off. It's being ignored. It's having that micromanager stand above you, maybe literally or in your Google Doc, kind of hovering over your cursor, watching you work, things like that. Those little small kind of daily paper cuts at work really add up. So instead of kind of thinking, how can I complain to somebody else, you need to actually learn how to have confrontation in a healthy way. And I think one of my favorite findings in social science is that couples who don't fight are much more likely to get a divorce than those who do and do it well. So take that lesson and apply it to the workplace. You have to learn how to have small confrontations at work by bringing up the behaviors immediately, 
not focusing on how you feel about them, but focusing on what the person did and kind of trying to squash that conflict early and often and creating a culture around that rather than just avoiding the confrontation, having a culture of niceness and going to HR because those strategies aren't effective and people just aren't getting feedback and they're not giving it. And I think learning how to have those kinds of small, low level daily conversations is really key to, to reducing your stress at work. Yes, but even in marriages where we deeply care about the other person, care what they think of us, and you want to get along with them forever, let's face it, most people in our society don't do confrontation well. We don't want to say negative things. And some people really like suffering, frankly, because you know you can feel self-righteous about it. I'm right, they're wrong, and that's why I'm suffering. And even though I feel terrible, that's a good feeling too. Totally. Like People love their grudges. They like to, you know... Um water them and replant them and grow them inside themselves until they've completely taken over their personalities. And I think that is absolutely a real thing. I think clinging on to being right is something that people care about more than actually getting along. But I think you have to think about your outcomes as zero sum. I'm either going to like be able to perseverate on this and kind of like being hard done by, or I'm going to get five more hours of work done a week because I'm not completely distracted by the stressor. Pitting things against each other is kind of a good way to do this. And I think, and this is true in all kinds of relationships, um, you know, and also just kind of remember that um, most people avoid conflict because when they do it, they're doing it poorly. And the person they're doing it with gets super defensive, engages in reverse blame, is very threatened by it. Um, and that's your starting point. Um, so knowing that that's your starting point, you then kind of have to be like a Trojan horse when you walk into that conversation and kind of sneak attack um, those criticisms in a way they're going to go over smoothly. Tessa West is professor of psychology at NYU. She's also written the book Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. This has been the Labor Day Special from CBS News Radio, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhall, with assistance from Hunter Sense. I'm Gil Gross. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.